You are listening to Without Precedent, a podcast series hosted by Eli Edwards and Nikki Pope of Santa Clara University School of Law. We talk with inventors, lawyers, academics, judges, politicians about the impact of technology and innovation on the law and legal practice. Without Precedent is sponsored by the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara Law. I'm Nikki Pope, one of the co-hosts of Without Precedent. And I'm Eli Edwards, the other co-host. Today, we are joined by Kenton Bryce. Kenton is the Director of Technology Innovation at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. A 2009 alum of the law school, Kenton returned in 2015 as its first digital resource librarian. In addition to teaching legal research, Kenton also assists in administering the digital initiative at the law school. After graduation from law school, Kenton was a litigation associate at the Dallas office of the firm formerly known as Christman, Kelly, and Clark. Kenton relies on his professional and technical experiences to help educate law students on how to utilize technology to become more effective researchers, lawyers, and professionals. Last year, Kenton was chosen as one of the Fast Case 50, a yearly designation by the legal research provider of the law's smartest, most courageous innovators, techies, visionaries, and leaders. Welcome to the podcast, Kenton. Great to be here. I'm really excited to be on this podcast. I love talking about uh, what we do here at OU and kind of what my career has turned into in the past few years. And so happy to be here. Excellent. Can you, um, Kenton, can you tell us, a, just tell us a little bit about what it is you are doing with virtual reality to, at OU? Sure. So we, let me give you a little backstory. We started with virtual reality about three years ago. Um, as a piece of a larger campaign at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, we have an emerging technology librarians team through OU Libraries, which is our main campus library system. And they started working with virtual reality about four years ago. And we saw some of what they were doing. And um, through our dean's leadership, through my, uh, my, the director of our law library's leadership, Darren Fox, and myself, uh, we looked at that and the type of technology they're using, saying, hey, that, this is something that can be plugged into a law school curriculum and something that we could start to experiment with to see how lawyers could use it. And so, um, so we took what they were doing, and, which was just visualizing uh, objects in three dimensions, and we decided to figure out what we could do with that. And so we went out and we bought uh, two Oculus Rift headsets, uh, some gaming computers, and then decided um, that we had no clue what we were doing. And so <laughs> um, we, it, it, buying the hardware is the easy piece uh, of virtual reality. Uh, I can go online, order a headset from Oculus or HTC or now even Steam or PlayStation, if we had that set up, um, that's the easy part. The, hardest, the harder parts are figuring, figuring out where it fits in your curriculum, as well as how to develop content. And so for us, what we started out doing 
was 360 degree video, uh, immersive video, the easiest thing you can do with virtual reality technology. And so we started with that. Um, we, and we started pretty basic. We started curating video content that other people had made and uh, really nicely produced content. We looked at uh, UNICEF had done some videos in collaboration with a company called uh, Within and uh, we displayed some of those videos for our human rights students, uh, including one called Clouds Over Sidra, which is still probably one of the more impactful videos we show our students where basically our students can walk or, or not really walk around, but get a 360 immersive experience inside a Syrian re refugee camp in Jordan. And so um, we just I actually, I, I actually saw that video. Um, yeah. I have an Oculus Go. And yeah. so um, I watched that um, Clouds Over Sidra. And um, can you tell us a little bit about how your students what impact that had on your students or on on the community outside of um, outside of your uni your university and your law school? Well, anything I say about uh, what we do with VR, um, it's all anecdotal. We haven't done any kind of studies on the impact. Um, uh, and we don't have any quantifiable uh, metrics on basically if these videos help increase empathy in our students or not. Anecdotally, though, um, yeah, we we have students come up to us. They see the video and they they say basically, "Oh my gosh, it feels like I'm there." And um, I've had multiple people cry while watching it. Um, I haven't seen anybody else cry during uh, some other documentaries on the refugee crisis in the Middle East, but I've had multiple people cry. Uh, I've had people feel like they get a better understanding of what the what the conditions are like in those refugee camps, uh, more so than uh, reading out of a book or reading an article um, or even listening to a podcast. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, it, it's just another way to experience content. And uh, that's what we're approaching it as. This is, we're, we're not approaching this as some um, revolutionary way to experience content, but more of an evolutionary way to experience content. You know, we, we have books, we have pictures, um, and then you know, we have PowerPoint presentations and digital photography, and then we had video and audio and that was basically on a 2D screen in front of you where you can be distracted from if your cell phone goes off, you're, if you're in a movie theater, for instance, somebody starts chewing on popcorn and it really annoys you. And so, um, but with, with, with the VR technology that we have, just on the video side, you know, it's just that evolution. Now, now you're placed inside this video and you cannot get away from it. And so when our students come to us and say, hey, it's so impactful, um, it's way more impactful than I could ever imagine seeing this just on my phone, uh, watching a little YouTube clip. Um, yeah, it makes sense. You know, we're evolving the video um, to where it is now. And then we moved along into making our own content. And so we, We've had some faculty here that have asked us to come help them make videos. Uh, so we had a, so anything from really exciting to really boring, on the really boring side, uh, we had a professor who wanted to take a 360 video of a student presentation of a merger of two oil, well, a fake merger of two oil companies in front of a law firm as part of their project in their course. And so we put a 360 video in, uh, on a conference room table 
and just recorded the whole presentation. And the students could go back and watch themselves presenting, see the attorneys on the other side of the table, how they were reacting in real time. Um, so we've done that. Uh, and then we did have students come up. Uh, last summer I had a student that asked to create a video in a courtroom for his trial techniques presentation. Um, and so in trial techniques, they do a mock trial at the end of the semester. And he wanted to tape the whole thing in 360. So we did. And uh, then he got to evaluate himself on his own time. This was not a class requirement. And he could, it was funny watching him and hearing him comment as he's watching it. Cause as he's questioning a witness, he looks back and sees the jury and how they are responding. He's like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have seen them respond like that when I was talking to the witness uh, because he doesn't have eyes in the back of his head. Um, but with that, it's that immersive video and able to create that content here on the ground. He's able to get that experience. And so 360 video immersive video has been the kind of the easy win for us. Um, so I wanted to ask you, particularly when it comes to VR. I mean, I remember when um, VR referred to second life and there was a bunch of <laughs> yeah. educational institutions that went into second life and established virtual universities and, Eventually, they all went away, um, and that didn't quite work. How did this version of VR come to you as the possibility for legal education? So uh, the second life issue was taking what we do in the real world and trying to put it in a virtual world. Um, that's not what we're doing at Oklahoma at all. Right. We're not trying to take what we do. So to make this simpler, so we're not looking at creating a virtual courtroom. Right. Uh, we don't I don't perceive that courtrooms are going to uh, go virtual anytime soon where the judge is now wearing a headset. The jury's wearing a headset. Your witnesses are in a headset and everybody's somewhere on a beach uh, enjoying themselves during recess. But they get back in the headset, do their work. Um, I don't see it as a reality anytime soon. Uh, and that's, I think, what Second Life was trying to do for education, right? Um, you don't have to come to class. You can just go to a virtual class, and we'll all see each other there, and our avatars there. Um, that's not where we're going with this. What we're doing with this is looking at virtual reality and saying, how can we use this technology to um, create virtual scenery that our students can engage with that is meaningful to their curriculum. So where our archeology span department's using it, our, our architecture <laughs> students are using it to walk through buildings they create um, mm -hmm. in the classroom. And because we can virtualize that, I've actually done that a few times here with some of our construction. Um, and the you know, law is just using it saying, what, what can we do with this to take the, the normal evidence presentation in a courtroom and just modernize it. And so, you know, I talked about that linear progression of video. Well, I see the same thing with evidence presentation. Um, you know, back in the seventies, we had poster boards and then we had overhead projectors and then we had, uh, you know, PowerPoint presentations and with just photography. And even we had some 3D simulations. I think in the, uh, there's a story somewhere out there about the OJ trial and using a 3D uh, basically animation of how somebody thought everything went down. And 
uh, now we're just taking it's like, okay, well, now we have another medium for evidence presentation through virtual reality. So it's a bit different than the idea of like a virtual space that you enter into, um, kind of like Second Life. It's more of what objects in the real world do we need to discover? Do we need to uh, manipulate? Do we need to interrogate? And how do we do that um, using virtual reality? That's basically what we're doing. So to do something like that um, with evidence, I mean, I'm, I'm not a trial attorney, I'm not, um, but it would seem to me that there would be all kinds of issues with um, validation and certification of what the virtual reality experience includes and who decides what this, what this virtual evidence is going to look like, it's going to contain. Um, because part of what the, the prosecution and defense are arguing is, in fact, what happened. Correct. So how do you decide that? So that's, uh, you know, um, that's a question we're answering or we're trying to answer through our programming here. When we get our students in the headsets, when they are experiencing virtual evidence in a courtroom, that's why we, that's why I emphasized earlier, we have about an hour of just Q&A about what this means. How, how do you authenticate virtual reality evidence. Now, it's a big conversation with the team I work with, and um, a lot of it depends on process, right? And so think about uh, digital photography, right? Well, that was a big question. How do we authenticate digital photography about 10, 15, 20 years ago? Uh, but we looked at the evidence rules and say, there, there's a framework for this, right? Is it reliable? Um, you know, and so we have frameworks for authenticating evidence in court. Just because virtual reality is now a 3D representation of something, I don't think changes that framework. I think some of the questions we have to answer about its creation um, have to be uh, answered in a way that's meaningful to an authentic authentication process. Um, my actual, <laughs> my bigger question in the back of my mind, and I do not have an answer for this yet, um, is basically going back down to what happened in the 80s with big blow-up posters of bloody scenery, right? Uh, so is, is that evidence, uh, does, it, does the prejudicial value of that evidence outweigh its probative value, right? And so if I have blood splatter in virtual reality, <laughs> is that really prejudicial or is that actually probative? Um, it's no longer a black and white photo or a color photo of blood splatter. Now it's something that I could really zoom in on and explore. Uh, is that really, is that prejudicial that inflame a jury? Uh, I think that's the bigger question. I think authentication issues, we, we can fix that and we can answer those questions through uh, the process of capture, like content capture, who's, con who's capturing that content, um, basically chain of ownership of that content. Um, understanding how the software works to process uh, the content that was captured, uh, whether or not it's from a demonstrable standpoint or for a more like photorealistic evidence standpoint. And so um, I think we can answer those. The, the one, the lingering question in my mind is if this makes it into a court, it's not about the reliability. I think we have the tools in place to answer that question through uh, metadata, and some other log records that we have and explaining the process like we would with any other kind of uh, sophisticated evidence. 
I think the, the bigger question is, how will the jury perceive one party using this versus the other party not using it? And would they look at the defense attorney that is highlighting a certain area in VR um, in a different light than the prosecution or et cetera? Uh, and then the, the kind of another question that we have running through our process here that we're trying to think through is um, who gets to use it? <laughs> so uh, who gets to use this technology? Is it the lawyers uh, walking through a scene and explaining what's going on? Is it the expert witness? Is it the actual jurors? Because you could have the potential, the technology's there um, to basically do a scan, so to speak, of an entire crime scene, have every angle possible covered so you really do image the crime scene in three dimensions and when you do that you have the possibility of having the jury walk through it uh, untethered from anyone's narrative what does that look like because uh, i don't think we've had that before and Even, would a judge allow it yeah or will a judge allow it and so i think there's some issues with that that we've got to face um and well as you were as you were talking, one of the things that occurred to me is, um, you know, they say like um, seeing is believing, and uh, aside from the aside from the the, the prejudicial prejudicial value of showing blood spatter, um, is it possible that just showing the crime the way whichever party is using it believes it occurred will present itself to the jury as this is how the crime occurred so that they believe what they see as opposed to take what they see as a potential scenario and, and evidence to be reviewed and, and determined whether it is relevant or um, believable or not. I don't know. Um, so let me give you an example of how I think the most beneficial way of evidence presentation could be. Um, and so we have DNA evidence, right? That exonerates people years after they've served a sentence. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's actually a case, I cannot remember most of the specifics of it, so you have to forgive me, but it just came to my mind as I was thinking through this. And there was a handkerchief um, sitting on the front lawn, kind of away from the house, that had dropped out of the actual, the actual suspect, the actual uh, murderer, uh, out of his pocket, right? Well, no one thought about that handkerchief for like 20 years, right? There may have been a photo out there. But if you had captured that entire crime scene in 3D, and then you can go back and explore that crime scene as it existed on the day it happened, um, maybe lawyers could find something right? To exonerate someone. Maybe they can create doubt with that one handkerchief. Like what is, you know, maybe there's just like document review <laughs> in a transactional case where you're reviewing hundreds of thousands of documents as they existed at the time. We don't have a way of really doing that, I don't think, in a good context where everything is being captured. We, so let me explain what I mean by that. When you have CSI uh, people go into a crime scene or any kind of scene or accident scene, you are tethered to a person's photographic narrative of what they want you to see from that crime scene, right? All the photos that they take um, are from someone's point of view pointing a camera. If you do a 3D scan, by definition, you have to capture every single angle. 
there's no point of view anymore. And so that was similar to the 360 video. There's no one's framed point of view anymore that you're looking through to see the evidence. Okay. Uh, and so if we can, if we can open up attorneys and investigative attorneys to basically see the whole picture without someone's narrative framing it for you in a real way, I think that could help um, some cases, not all cases. And so maybe it's not even in trial we're using this. Maybe it's just an investigation part. Um, and then at trial, I mean, the, the broader question is, can juries actually go and release themselves from someone's narrative? Because trial is just competing narratives, right? The prosecution has one narrative they want the jury to believe. The defense has another narrative that they want to create doubt or help the jury believe. Um, and then we, we assume they go back into the jury room, collect all the evidence and come up with their own narrative, but they've got these two competing narratives they have to weigh. Uh, and if you use virtual reality content and you allow them headsets in a jury room, they can just walk around the crime scene on their own. And I don't think we're ready for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and then just go visit in real time. So I think it's more on the investigation side where an attorney that is reviewing evidence isn't doing it based on someone else's framework for that evidence. Um, I think that could help some of our criminal justice system. The, the things that I have been reading suggest that law students are pretty tech averse. And one of the reasons why they're in law school is because they don't want to do math and they don't want to do science and they're not STEM. And so um, have you found that in uh, among the OU students? Are they, are they excited about virtual reality or using tech or, or is it just a, a very few who are interested in it? Well, one, uh, students that come here uh, will know, probably should know if they haven't already. <laughs> uh, it's all in our marketing material. Uh, we've had this digital initiative for five years, right? If they're coming to school here, they know they're going to get blasted with tech. <laughs> so they don't have a choice. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think they're tech adverse. Uh, I think students generally, at least our students, um, they're not tech adverse. They are more, I mean, a lot of them did come from political science backgrounds or constitutional studies, non-STEM degree programs. But I think the further we go along um, in what we've been doing here, uh, the more students realize the value of technology and practice, whether that be virtual reality, artificial intelligence, uh, Microsoft Office. <laughs> so, um I think the, the further we go along, the more they're engaging. And we're seeing that through our the numbers we collect and the data we track in our programming here. The digital initiative, can you talk a little bit about that and how the VR fits into the initiative? Yeah, sure. So the digital initiative was started in 2014 um, by my boss, Darren Fox, who's the director of our library associate dean here um and it was a year before i got here and really the idea so the idea of the original digital initiative had three components to it uh the first was an ipad so all of our students still get an ipad we have a one-to-one -one program here where every law student that comes in gets an ipad free of charge that they get to take with them into practice um and our current model uh is the ipad with the pencil 
and a keyboard case. And so we say, welcome to here. Now we have a uniform platform that we know you have something. And that has kind of poured into our second element of our digital initiative, which is training and curriculum. And so we started training students back in 2014, mostly on the iPad, a few other things about technology and practice, how to use the iPad as a lawyer would use it. And, um, and then when I came along, we start, basically they hired me to split time with the library and split time with the digital initiative. And now I direct um, basically our entire digital initiative through what is now called the center for technology and innovation and practice. And basically we enhanced our curriculum and our training to go beyond the iPad to talk more just about technology in general and practice. Um, we do it and everything's focused on practice. That's why I keep saying in practice, um, but everything's focused on what, how you can leverage technology to be a better lawyer. Um, to help your process of your law firm be more efficient and productive. And so uh, we teach them on everything from Microsoft Office Suite all the way to AI and blockchain as lawyers can use it today. And so um, where virtual reality fits into that was kind of our third element, which is our facilities. And so that was, so back in 2014, we received a grant by the End of Much Foundation out of Oklahoma City to renovate about 8,000, 9,000 square feet of our library space. And we built the Collaborative Learning Center. And about that same time is when uh, the, the emerging technology librarian, only one at the time named Matt Cook, who is now at Harvard, um, was working with virtual reality. And so, uh, as part of that grant, we were like, we need to find a way to plug in VR into this facility and then try to figure out how it fits in our curriculum. And so that's kind of how it all started. Uh, but the digital initiative has grown. Uh, that first year, I think we had uh, 1,200 quote unquote attendances. So like students can go to these extracurricular sessions. They don't have a class called the digital initiative. It's just Every week, we host about two to four lunch and learns per week on, like I said, anything from Microsoft Word to AI. Uh, our peak was uh, two years ago. We peaked out at over 3,000 people going to those um, out of our 500-person student body. Um, last year, we had a little bit over 2,400 because we actually reconfigured some of it to have more workshop-style things with smaller groups to kind of get more hands-on deep dive into stuff with like... We had a chatbot workshop and we had a blockchain uh, investment competition workshop that was all student run. That was kind of a fun one. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's our digital initiative and really emerging tech kind of came into that through the facility gambit. Uh, now we have a fully blown out emerging technology initiative here as well. Um, that would include the virtual reality that include drones. So beyond just having fun with them, I'm also, exploring how lawyers can use drones in practice. And a lot of it's evidence capture or compliance work, um, or even into utilities of how they can do line inspections with drones for compliance. You know, we're looking at regulations and Oklahoma's kind of interestingly positioned in this because the Choctaw Nation, which is one of our tribes here in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, has a special deal with the Federal Aviation Administration to help basically be an experimental you know, body to see how drones would play in agricultural land. And so um, 
I just, I'm kind of on the side of that group. I just kind of watch what's going on over there. I'm not highly involved with them, but it's kind of cool to see all these little drone areas. Um, I actually have a poster on the front of my door or news article in the front of my door that a student left me not too long ago talking about a coffee delivery by drone, which I would totally be into by the way. And so <laughs> I will take any coffee all the time. So, um, but yeah, so our digital initiative kind of started from those three tenants and it's really grown into this center where we're exploring how tech can be used and practiced by lawyers, no matter what kind of technology it is. Great. Well, I have um, one last question for you. Um, you've given us a lot of great stories and ideas and um, ways to focus on this and think about this for law schools that are considering integrating VR into um, the, their educational settings or their trial techniques or what all, um, what three things do you wish you knew before you started that would have either made the process smoother or made everyone just instantly buy in to the whole thing? Oh my, uh, so, so the first one is, I don't know if it'd help people buy in, but just to have a realistic framework for what it's like to develop content. There are, in my estimation, there are not really any good tools right now. Um, you have to have some really good technical skills to custom create virtual content. Um, and it all depends on the hardware you have. Like, I don't know how to code in Unity. I, I don't, uh, I'm not a developer. And so I rely on a team of people from main campus to do that. Um, so unless you have that framework already in place, um, just know custom content is a learning curve and it's hard to do and it takes time. So that'd be my first thing. Just have a realistic outlook. Like I said, anybody can go buy a headset at Best Buy right now. Uh, the question is content in the educational setting. Um, and there's just no good platform right now to develop custom content. Maybe someday there will be, but I just don't see one out there yet. Um, number two, you don't need a supercomputer to run virtual reality anymore. I think a lot of people think that. They think it costs a ton of money to do this um, from a hardware perspective. Um, Nikki, you were saying you have an Oculus Go. Uh, that's all it takes, all right? Uh, or even just, you know, Jenny Wondrasek, I'll give a shout out to her at UNT Dallas. Uh, she has just been using Galaxy phones, Samsung Galaxy phones, and um, Sam, or were they called Oculus gear headsets or Samsung gear headsets? That's cheap. That's easy yeah. to do. And so, um, I think a lot of people have this misconception that it's really expensive to get into virtual reality. Um, I think the harder part, like I said earlier, is the content creation, but the display devices are really easy to get and they're not that expensive. Um, number three, what I wish I would have known that would have instantly created buy-in, um, Really, the sky is the limit with this technology when you're talking about integrating curriculum. You know, we talked a lot about stuff today, um, but if you're trying to cast vision, you can really do anything um, that has to do with information display or evidence display or um, or person-to-person -person contact. You know, you talk about Second Life. That's still possible in VR. Uh, so really, just be imaginative, and when you're talking to your stakeholders, 
uh, just kind of dream a little with them. And I've done that with a few of our faculty. It's been kind of fun. And then we go and do the process of what that would look like to actually create the content. We realize, okay, that's, that's pretty hard, but it's kind of fun to dream with faculty because um, they, they generally don't get the chance to just kind of dream about how virtual reality can work in law schools, but it can really work in a lot of different areas. Um, yeah, so that'd be my three. Hopefully that's concise enough. <laughs> it is. Thank you so very much. Thank you. You've yeah. given us a lot to think about. Good. Well, I'm glad. Thanks for having me on, by the way. This, is, this has been fun. You have been listening to Without Precedent, a podcast series that considers the impact of technology and innovation on the law and legal practice. Our music was composed by Nicole Jacobus. Our editor is Nicole Jacobus. Our audio engineer is Fern Silva of the Santa Clara University Communication Department. Without Precedent is sponsored by the High Tech Law Institute. The views expressed on Without Precedent are solely the views of the participants and do not reflect the views of the High Tech Law Institute, Santa Clara Law, or Santa Clara University, and should not be construed as legal advice. To learn more about Without Precedent, visit our website, law.scu.edu slash without precedent. <laughs>